Hey everyone, welcome to Dev Educate. I'm Kamran Ayub. Today I'm joined by Eric Dietrich. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Awesome. Did I pronounce your name right? You nailed it. Excellent. So I've known I've known of Eric for quite a long time, or even early in my career, following his blog. But for folks who are hearing you for the first time, do you mind sharing a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. I am, I've kind of had a sort of long and winding, strange career, but my background is application development. So I did that for a long time in organizations. And then I kind of worked my way up the org chart. I eventually went indie and started to become, or, or was kind of a, I guess you would call it an IT management and strategy consultant. Did that for a number of years, had kind of a specialized practice around helping organizations make decisions with static code analysis. And then I wound up starting a marketing business, which is a strange thing to have done. But so basically that came about because of the aforementioned blogging I was doing. More and more businesses started to come to me and ask me to do paid content creation. And after a while, I wanted to get off the road from 100% travel. So my wife and I partnered up to start a done-for-you content business to kind of see where it would go. And the answer to that is there's a lot of demand in the space. So it really took off over the years. And now... I am the CEO of that business and it has grown a good bit. So these days I am the CEO of a marketing strategy company. Perfect. And specifically is that around developer content? For the most part, we have started to expand outside of that world, but I would say right now about 90% of our book of business is doing things that are related to content for engineers, mostly software developers, sometimes some folks in in the data side of the house or ops or, or quality assurance, but largely developers. Well, and I think I would sort of categorize that as like technologists. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's fair. Cool. Well, so I invited you onto the show today because I couldn't think of anyone better to talk about developer content strategy and what that means and what that means in relation to open source businesses and developer relations. Maybe we want to kind of start off with like, how, how do you define like developer content? I, this was always an interesting one over the years because in as much as we ever really marketed hit subscribe, which is kind of a strange thing to say for a marketing business, but we never did a lot of marketing. If we were to like to get the positioning right, it was always kind of awkward. And I think it was sort of like, well, if you're trying to reach software developers, or if you're trying to get software developers to use your platform, that is what we do. And that is developer marketing, I suppose. It's just interesting. You don't see too many, I guess maybe it's because of the sheer number of software developers and the import they have to the organization, because you don't hear a lot of other, you know, like a job title and then marketing. It's kind of unique to uh, developers. Yeah, exactly. And I think what I've mostly seen is when people say developer content, they're kind of talking about articles, but uh, I don't know if you would say that there are a lot of other types of content types that you could do. Like I've dealt with video a lot of the time, but are there other types of like developer content that you've seen or dealt with? I think anything, there's a pretty strong correlation with tutorial content. I think just because there's so much DIY and self-serve in the industry. so. I think of blog posts as being pretty common. There are a lot of different flavors of blog posts related to tutorials and developer marketing. I think video is pretty common, but podcast is a good venue as well. Courses, video courses, um, 
probably some things are escaping me. And, and I mean, if you were, I guess, depending on how much you broaden the scope, there would be things like use cases and landing pages as you're getting more into like the product marketing or, you know, sales side of things. I could think of like conference talks, maybe webinars could also be considered developer content. There's just so, there's so much. Yeah. And speaking of flavors, we're talking about like developer documentation and blog posts and what's the difference between like an article versus a blog post and the different types of like flavors of articles, like how to's versus guides versus Oh, I don't know, walkthroughs or, or evergreen types of content. Like how do you distinguish between those different types of articles? I think broadly, I would say it depends on, I'm trying to think of how far or like how abstract to make the answer in, in a sense, in terms of fitness for purpose, like a guide and a tutorial might be somewhat interchangeable. Mm -hmm. If you are doing something like trying to get search engine traffic. That distinction can matter just because of what you'll title the article resonating more with somebody who's searching. So I think some of the distinction among both the media themselves and how you might title or position or distribute them, it has to do with their kind of fitness for marketing purpose. So I, I tend to look at it through that lens. I always think of content in terms of who is it that you want to read this piece of content and then what are you hoping that they'll do next? Mm -hmm. And those two pieces of information kind of to me inform, you know, what sort of content it should be, how you should title it, how you should distribute it, et cetera. Yeah. So let's dive into that a little bit, because I think that who part is really interesting because there are different types of who's. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what are the, where would you start if you're, let's say you're thinking of an article just to keep it simple, where would you start with like who it's targeted to? In a commercial setting, it would be, I mean, there's a variety of ways that you can come at it. So like a lot of companies that are defining a go-to-market or adoption strategy will talk in terms of a top-down market motion or a mm -hmm. bottom-up. Mm -hmm. And um, those respectively mean, do you market to like, say, leaders and then hope those people will make a purchase and get their organizations to use it? Or do you market to individual contributors that are practitioners? and hope there's enough groundswell of adoption to get the leaders interested. And so that alone really has a lot of impact on the who piece of that. So typically, and it's, if I'm already at the point of an individual article, I've probably made some upstream decisions about who and what I'm trying to do. But typically, you know, if I were thinking of just marketing strategy for a miscellaneous business, the who would really be informed by, you know, whether you were trying to get users onto your platform or whether you were trying to speak to leadership, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, and I think a lot of us sort of start with the article in mind, almost like a, if you're a developer, you start, you know, you're thinking of the solution first, but what we really need to sort of ask is like, why are we writing an article? And if we're picking who it's for, we need to know like why it's targeted that way. And so let's move up a little level and maybe I can ask like, what, what are some of the more upstream decisions that you would be making before even considering writing an article? If I think about, you know, an organization's marketing strategy, 
there is this idea, especially of venture-backed startups, which is a decent portion of our book of business, that you're going to be looking for, there's an excellent book on this, by the way, called Traction, but you're going to be looking for traction, some channel in which you want to gain traction. And that could be any number of things. It might be search engine traffic that in particular is an attractive one because it's very predictable and there's no reaching costs. But you might be trying to go viral and, you know, rocket to the top of Hacker News with a bunch of articles you're writing. Or you might be building a social media following and so on and so forth. What you're really trying to do as you explore those possible modes of using content to bring awareness to what you're doing, you're trying to figure out which one is kind of working for you. And then once you've run some experiments and you figure out the one that's working for you, you want to put your chips into the middle on that one and really dial it up. So the upstream decisions that would be taking place would really involve identifying the likelihood of you gaining traction with whatever it is you're trying to do. So if you have a history, you know, like I think of my dead tech blog, for instance, Although this was purely accidental. There was no strategy behind that. I just like ranting on the internet and <laughs> wound up with an audience. So that was all accidental. I learned about marketing later. But that blog in particular, if I were trying to market a book or, or market some kind of consulting offering through the blog, I might look at the fact that I had historically done well with share channels and rants and stuff and say, okay, I want to get, you know, audience about the topic of static code analysis. So maybe I'll write some provocative posts on that topic and hope that they take off with shares. Yeah, that makes sense. So you would be thinking about, so I liked how you mentioned you'd be doing like experiments to try out different channels. And maybe we want to take a step back and say like, there, there's so many, there's so many different channels and mediums and content types. Where does creating a content strategy fit in like when when would i want to, when would i want to sit down and create a content strategy with my team i think that the way a lot of this can get misconstrued is there is kind of two modalities of content that i can think of i mean roughly one is what I did with dead tech, which is I like to write. So it's a hobby. I start creating content and sharing and it picks up and gains steam and people like it and whatnot. There is that style of content creation. And if that is what you're doing, or you're just kind of, you know, playing around without any measurables or whatever, then the decision is kind of easy. You just create content roughly on the basis of like, what could you, what do you enjoy? What could you sustainably create, et cetera? If we're talking about commercial content, then a lot of the approach, and I've flirted with this like kind of provocative idea to say that there isn't really even a such thing as a content strategy. But what, I, what I'm really getting at with that is your, the nature of the content you create and the channels in which you create it are really going to be informed by laying out how somebody goes from, I have never heard of your brand before to, I want to become a customer. Mm -hmm. And that's really going to be informed by a lot of business considerations. So what is the ticket price of your offering? Who is it that's buying your offering? Is there a buyer committee? You know, so is it the CIO that buys? Can an individual contributor buy? So you take all these business concerns like customer lifetime value, who is buying and when, what your sales cycle is like, what the length is, and you start to work backwards and say, okay, feeding all of this information back into my marketing approach. How do I get somebody's attention? And then how do I keep their attention until the moment where they trust me enough to become a customer? Mm -hmm. That's really in as much as I think about content strategy, it's that. Identifying those people, how you're going to get their attention and then keep it on through to customerhood 
And then the actual specifics become more along the lines of tactics. So if, for instance, I am a services-based company like a custom app dev shop or something, six to seven figure LTV, typically your, your typical sales cycle is going to be quite long. It's going to involve buying, you know, VP's dinner or whatever. Mm-hmm. Your content leading up to that, I would argue in a lot of cases, maybe even shouldn't really exist, or if it exists, it's pure sales enablement, meaning you're going to create content that is designed that once you have a prospect, you're actually giving that prospect stuff to read, for instance. Right. And that's going to be much different than a SaaS that anybody could buy for $15. There, you're going to be playing a volume game. You probably want to build, you know, you know, up to a million visitors a month through search engine traffic to your site so that enough of them buy from you. Hopefully that isn't like too much of a mouthful, but those are, it's really like business drivers up front that start to inform the way that you're going to use content to nurture people along to customerhood. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It, what it reminds me of, if if people in the audience haven't yet read like the DevRel book, the developer relations book, it's very, it's very good, but there are, it mentions the different types of business models. So you, you sort of mentioned the B2B kind of model where it's very sales led and you have longer sales cycles and that type of content looks very different. It could be something like a product roadmap that you would be showing a prospect during a meeting. And then there, you know, there might be more like webinar type stuff. And then you've got the B to D it's like business to developers. So that might be like more product led growth where you might have like a services arm as part of your company where developers can sign up for your product. And that's where they can be individual buyers and they could try out your product. And that's where sort of the more content at scale kind of comes in. And then there's, I guess, a C, which should, it's a little bit harder to sort of articulate, but that might be more of like a Salesforce type of thing where it's not, not just developers, but more and more general consumers, I suppose, inside of an organization. And then that kind of content looks a bit different. So that's what that kind of reminded me of. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things that I see a lot, if strategy isn't kind of communicated from first principles for the business almost is it's kind of easy. I was just writing about this recently to absent strategy, confuse tactics with strategy and start to say, well, what's, what's the right thing to measure for a content program or what sort of content, you know, should, is the best to create, let's say. And I think that happens a lot because the way that you use content in your marketing is so variable that it can feel like boiling the ocean. So there's a tendency to just say, well, this is almost unknowable. So Mm -hmm. I'm just going to kind of focus on the tactics. If I produce enough tutorials, eventually someone will notice and buy from me. So it it is a tough thing to wrap your head around. And so like, usually if people are asking me, what should I do from a content perspective, it leads to a pretty like detailed dive into like what the nature of the business is. What have you tried so far that's working or not working and so on and so forth. So. I think one of the things that tends to be missing from the conversation about what to do with content marketing and your strategy around digital marketing is those specifics that like that it it hurts you to generalize. The example I keep coming back to is it's like hearing a question that is of the form, like, what direction should I drive? And you would say, well, I mean, we need to know where you're going. So I, I have a lot of those moments and it's not, I don't mean to make the audience of these types of things sound obtuse. It's just content is 
kind of always you're you're presenting something to a reader and you're hoping that the reader will do something. So that's so contextual and so specific that you need to know a lot in order to know what sort of content to create. Yes, it is. It's definitely a a complex kind of beast to get your head around. I mean, there's there's a couple like tools that I've used with my clients to try to straighten it out. I think one of the useful ones, are you familiar with like the levels of buyer awareness or customer awareness from, I think it's Eugene Schwartz? I don't know specific. I'm not familiar with that. Okay. But are we talking about like consideration, awareness, that type of thing? Yeah. Well, so the the levels are specifically like not aware. So no awareness at all that they even have a problem or solution. Hmm. Then there's a problem aware, solution aware, product aware, and then mostly aware. And I sort of like that breakdown. I think it's specifically around copywriting, but it, you know, translates to marketing and then, and then content marketing pretty well, because what I noticed is I was working with a client and they're like, well, no one's reading our articles and I'm looking at the titles of the articles and they all include the product name. And I'm like, okay, well, when you look at the awareness spectrum, what you're writing about is people who are product aware, like that's who you're targeting with those titles, because if I am aware of your product, then I'm maybe going to be able to read an article about your product because of the headline, right? I'm going to click on it because I know it. But if I am problem aware, that is where you'll find the type of content where people are searching for like how to do something, or I have this problem and I'm not sure how to fix it. Like one example is my queries are running slow in SQL Server. So I'd be I'd be searching for like, you know, my queries are slow, SQL Server, and I'd be looking for Stack Overflow questions and things like that. If I'm solution aware, I am aware that I have a problem and I know what kind of solution I want, but I don't know that there are solutions like yours around. So in this case, for the uh, slow queries, it might be like, I'm looking for SQL indexing tips, right? And so that's what I'm searching for because I know that that is going to solve my problem, probably. I just don't know that you're out there and you could help me. And then for product aware, that's where I'd be searching for specific product solutions. Like I'm using Entity Framework and I want to know how to write queries, you know, in Entity Framework. That's like what a product aware search might be. And then the, the, the really hard one to target is like the mostly unaware. And that's where like you need to get in front of people in the kind of context that they're in. So in this case, if I am dealing with SQL Server, I'm sort of in that ecosystem. And so maybe you would have ads or articles that might be targeting things that are kind of around me, but not necessarily directly related to a solution or a problem. So I, I feel like that has helped like set the, like that's helped frame kind of what types of content are we creating as part of like this 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 content strategy. I don't know if that's if you've seen something similar like that or if you use something similar like that. It it squares with my understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen that particular categorization, but I'm mapping it to in my mind, you know, things I've heard from clients or what have you. <clears throat> and the I think that like in a typical marketing funnel, there is a decent amount of overlap between like brand awareness or like awareness, consideration, evaluation, that you could probably map the things you've talked about into a traditional marketing funnel for the most part. But I like the descriptions you have better, especially because like a lot of founders 
uh, especially in the developer world, if you're making developer tools, it's pretty common that you are going to be creating a category, meaning you're, you're building something that nobody has an elevator pitch for just yet. It's mm -hmm. so novel that people don't even know how to Google it or articulate it. And given how common that is, content marketing is so important because that's an excellent way, you know, you're entertaining or educating people potentially about general topics so that they get to your site and you can slowly make them aware of the problem and then slowly make them aware of the solution. And I love getting to them upstream like that, people that you could help with your offering, because if you take charge of educating them on the topic, there's no shopping around that happens when the time comes for a purchase. Mm -hmm. You have brought them from, I've never heard of this thing to now I understand it. And if you have done all of that education and stuck with them, usually they're just looking for an excuse to, you know, do business with you. Yes. It's the, it's the trust building and like the, the authority building, if you will, it's like the thought leadership almost. If, mm -hmm. you're, if you're educating customers on, you know, the, the space that you're in, like, let's say you're, you have some sort of DevOps you know, DevOps tool and you are helping to orchestrate microservices, then the space that you're operating in might be serverless and microservices. And if you're creating content around like understanding serverless or understanding distributed architecture and you're creating content and doing thought leadership around that, then customers will be coming. They might not be customers yet, but they might be coming into contact with your content. And then they're like building this little trust bubble up inside their head, we're like, okay, so-and-so is, is teaching me about serverless and I am, they give good advice <laughs> and they're helping me. And so then when I think about serverless, I'm thinking about them. Yeah. And this brings up too, we've used the term now a couple of times, but let's dive into a little bit about educating customers because it is my sort of angle that good content marketing in the developer space is really all about education. And, and I'm really interested to hear like what you found effective with your clients and the types of content that you've helped them create. And the subject of education in general, the developers, there's a lot of people competing for developer attention. And one thing that I've noticed is a lot of, ironically enough, a lot of technical founders in the early stages will tend to view marketing as I create a bunch of content where I explain how awesome my solution is, put that content in front of you, the reader, and then I logic you into submission and you give me, <laughs> I mean, I'm like satirizing this a little bit, but like often founders, especially ones that were like, came from maybe an individual contributor background where they have a great idea, they get some funding and then they want to go market to developers. They think that it's really about essentially persuasive content. Like mm -hmm. here's my thing. It's awesome. Here's why you should buy it. And that's the content that I want to create. And that's, I guess you could even construe that as education. I'm educating you about how awesome I am, but not really. I think a core component to the education piece is you're coming to the audience on the terms that they want. Mm -hmm. So you're not thinking about how can I sell them, you know, I guess to use the example we were talking about earlier, how can I sell them my tool that optimizes database queries or whatever? You're coming to them and saying the kind of person, or you're thinking to yourself, the kind of person that would want to optimize database queries tomorrow is probably the kind of person that is learning about SQL Server today. Right. Maybe taking courses on end-to-do framework. 
So I want to go out and I want to build trust with that person. I am going to help them in their journey to becoming my buyer tomorrow. That's actually a way I've tried over the years to introduce founders to the concept. Educate tomorrow's buyers. Like, sure, you can create sales enablement type content or product content for today's buyers. But if you're really in this for the long haul, take somebody who you right now would say is too, you know, junior or whatever to be my user and then fix that, you know, over the next year, they're going to go consume content that you produce until they are ready to become your buyer. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, I mean, the, the marketing funnel is kind of easy because they just trust you so much. So I think that type of education is, is key. And maybe the way to know whether you're doing it well or not is, are you helping your eventual user get better in a way that's the way they're seeking out, not just helping them understand that your product is awesome? Yes, exactly. I, and I, I take inspiration from like Seth Godin and Kathy Sierra. She has a book called Badass, Making Your Users Awesome. <laughs> and it, it basically talks, it basically like Seth Godin and her, you know, this type of like brand marketing and talking about how it's, it's a long game and that good marketing is about helping your audience get better at what they are doing in their larger context. And so when we think about developers and what they're building, that really kind of gets you into the kind of service mindset. Like if you're taking a posture of service with your marketing and you're helping them get better at their job or helping them, you know, make their applications better, not just with your product, but just in general. And then you're able to sort of tie that into how your product helps them in that specific case. I think the common term for this is like soft selling, like at the end of the article, like, okay, well, I just helped you optimize your SQL server index query. Wouldn't it be great if you did not have to do that? Well, we have this product that helps you with that. And it's just a really small thing and they might not take action right away, but in coming back and coming into contact with your brand multiple times, like in the long term, is again, that sort of trust building exercise. And then eventually they might take action. But what's really interesting is that like Seth Godin likes to say, like, you shouldn't really actually measure brand marketing because the act of measuring it is probably going to send you in a direction that you don't want to go because you, so many marketers are are used to measuring stuff like direct ads and promotion, like outreach, outbound marketing and, and measuring click-through rates and CTR and, and all that kind of stuff. Whereas with brand marketing, it, like your brand is every kind of touch point that someone has with your product and it's very hard to measure that, but we know that that's super effective. And the, the metaphor that I try to use with my clients is like, have you ever heard of Disney, right? Like Disney is brand marketing personified essentially like you my my the day that my kid is born you put them in a onesie with a mickey mouse on them like they don't know that there's mickey mouse on there but everyone who is holding the baby sees mickey mouse and then my kids go to the library and they get all these little easy reader books and they're all you know disney franchise characters and it's not that the kids are going to like buy Disney movies, it's really for the parents, but it's just like you were saying where 
your the kids are not going to be economic buyers for like 18 years or you know 15 to 18 years but by that time disney has infused themselves into their entire life and and then eventually you know you go to disneyland but if they're they're playing a long game but they've got these flagship you know flagship content and they just distribute that and slice and dice it all across the spectrum and so like that's brand marketing it's like you the kids don't really see ads for disney stuff but they they buy stuff that has disney on them or is related to disney in some way and like those are all little brand touch points so anyway that's kind of the metaphor i like to use yeah i like that it, it is interesting because especially in I guess kind of both the bootstrapped and venture back space, mm-hmm. you have this trade-off because I think, you know, we do a lot of search and trap. That's the word I'm looking for. Like, I guess I don't want to call it SEO content because that makes it sound like it's produced by a content mill or something. But the, the goal of the traffic or the goal of the content is primarily search engine traffic. Mm-hmm. And that is a long game. If you're going to drive, you know, six plus figures a month of traffic through the search engine, you're doing that, you're seeding that stock of content over 12 to 18 months. And in the venture-backed world or in different ways in the bootstrap world, that's a promising long-run investment, but it's also a good problem to have because it means you've survived to raise another round or you've stayed in business. So it's interesting to watch companies balance their strategy between things that will pay off shorter term and then building brand and building dependable traffic economically in the longer term and there's no like this is what i mean about it's so contextual i couldn't recommend a balanced portfolio of those concerns for any like abstract company it would really depend what you were doing Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it is it's hard to come up with that sort of that balance and it is it is almost like a almost like an asset portfolio, like in terms of like financial investments and, and like, where do, where do you invest? And it just depends on, depends on your context. Exactly. Like there's no one size fits all type of approach. So I think that plays well into sort of the, the discussion about getting bogged down in kind of tactics versus strategy. And we've talked a little bit about that, but how would how would you organize like your your sort of content plan or your content program to sort of help understand like what tactics are going to make sense would you would you just do like little you know experiments and you're testing and then you sort of go through that work that route or like how would you advise someone to start like thinking about what sort of channels or what types of content or what mediums to kind of get to that's interesting because we're actually looking at developing maybe in 2023 a sort of traction experimentation framework with some of our clients. It's think that like basically if you were to actually go and get the book traction, there's two books with that name, but I'm thinking of one in particular that talks about something like 17 or 19. It's a very specific number of like different channels, you know, like social media, SEO, et cetera, mm-hmm. that you could almost start with something like that and create a matrix and say, okay, here are all the different, like one of them is, you know, like maybe you take out billboards and you like put content up on the billboards. You could look at all these different channels and then maybe score them according to like, what are you the most comfortable with? 
what can you produce the most economically, what seems the most likely to resonate with your audience, et cetera. And if you were to give them a score, you could identify three or four potential channels. And then I would absolutely do the kind of experimentation we're talking about. So I have taken this to call, like, there's kind of a way of boxing this that I think of as a start criteria, succeed, fail, bail. So like, I'm going to run an experiment and I want to fund it enough to give it, to get statistically significant data out of it, but I don't want to go on in zombie form for too long if it's not working. So that's what I mean about like succeed is you exit the experiment and you know you're onto something. So you dial it up. Fail is you have, you know, it's just not working at all. You think I'm going to get, you know, 500 readers per article and you get zero. Like I'm clearly failing. I'm below some threshold. Mm -hmm. But the bail is, okay, we have to wrap this experiment. It hasn't really succeeded or failed. That's not the greatest outcome. So do we tune this in some way and keep going? Or, you know, what do we do now? So you define those kind of boxed in experiments on two or three channels, finance them in parallel, and then, you know, feed those observations back into what you decide to do next. And this is generally something that we hammer home with clients a lot, which is if if you're wondering, you know, am I, am I going to be able to get search engine traffic or will this article rank or will this take off on hacker news? You know, the answer is always, I don't know. How could we learn mm-hmm. and then use that to feedback and predict what her make decisions about what to do next. So all this is to say, you know, and again, it's hard in the abstract. If we did like a case study for a hypothetical company, maybe I could like give more specifics, but I do think it's really about identifying, you know, a few different things that you could do and then lean startup style, figuring out like what's the least expensive sort of most immediate way I can learn whether or not one of these is workable. And then you just keep feeding those results back into what you're doing and adjusting your content accordingly. Yeah. And I think the key thing that this assumes is that you are paying attention and measuring your content. What, like, what are, what are some of the KPIs you would use for making sure like, oh, this is working or like, this is not working. Cause I feel like it's not just views or page views. <laughs> right. I actually just like wrote something about this where I was talking about, like, there is sort of an ultimate metric to me, which is customer acquisition cost to LTV ratio. And that is basically how much does it cost you to acquire a profitable customer? I'm not going to spend too much time on this because it's impossible to measure across the organization for any one person. So like if you are, you know, a a DevRel and you're producing content, you have no way of measuring or controlling how profitable a customer is. But as you look at that particular metric, which is essentially how profitably are you acquiring customers, you probably want to get as close to that as you can. And you want to think in terms of leading indicators of success with that metric. So for instance, if you're creating content and it's getting no views in any medium, you're not going to acquire any customers because nobody's reading it. So you have a pretty strong leading indicator that you're going to fail in terms of profitably acquiring customers. So I guess, let me come back from the theory of that a little and talk about like what I might generally measure in a traction experiment. And it would be, I would sit down and say, okay, I think that we can get a lot of brand attention by writing contrarian posts and trying to get them to go on Reddit or Hacker News or whatever. And my hypothesis, and I would always want a hypothesis, is that, you know, maybe one in 10 of these things will actually go viral. I'll get like 40,000 brand impressions if that happens. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, breaks down to maybe 4,000 brand impressions per article in this particular channel. 
And I think that I'll create some brand awareness. That'll be difficult to measure, but maybe 1% of those people will click through to the site and start poking around. So with that hypothesis framework, I might start producing those articles and say, okay, if I produce 10 of these or 20 of these rants and none of them go viral and I'm nowhere near my 4K views, now I have to step back and ask, was I wrong about something here? Am I wrong about how likely a rant is to go viral? Am I bad at writing rants? You know, there's something is off. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what I'm measuring really has to do with my hypothesis and how I'm trying to confirm at least the first step of that hypothesis. So now let's, for instance, say that I'm actually beating my hypothesis and that one in every five is going viral. But even in spite of getting, you know, on average, say 8,000 views per article, nobody's clicking through to the site. That could be something super tactical, like, oh, I forgot to put a backlink in, but it could be, you know, for whatever reason, people like to read this content, but they don't like to leave the platform they're on. So there you have, you know, your first leading indicator might be views of the article. Mm -hmm. The second one is going to be the click-throughs back to your site. And then there could even be a third one, which is, yeah, people are clicking through back to the site, but they evaporate. And it's not clear to me that they do anything but get to the site, kick around and say, oh, this sucks. I'm out of here. So it's really just identifying what you want to measure and what you think you're going to learn and then using that particular metric. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I wonder if there are tools that can help with that. So the, I'm not sure if you've heard of a common room, but it is a, I guess you could say like a developer relations CRM type of software, but it, it does allow you to sort of track these kind of developer interactions across different sites, like a middle surface, you know, when someone leaves an issue, it's pretty interesting. And I, I haven't looked at it too deeply, but I, I know that it's out there just in case the audience wants to check it out. But uh, like my client is introducing like a CRM and so they were not tracking anything to begin with. And it feels like in order to kind of have a successful content strategy, like you have to be constantly measuring and, and reacting to kind of the, the data that you're seeing and not, not just blindly saying like, okay, well, we just need to produce tons of articles and tons of tutorials, because if you're, especially if you're a bootstrap company, you don't have that many resources to like, just pump out articles. Yeah, I I would say most definitely. And it is not lost on me, especially we're kind of significantly expanding uh, going into 2023, what Hit Subscribe does. So I'm looking at different adjacent offerings to what we've historically done. And one of the things that's very much not lost on me is just what a tough problem it is to solve getting good data about your marketing. And a lot of it is people understandably not wanting to be tracked and using tools that don't lend themselves well to being tracked, et cetera. So I don't begrudge the the viewer making that difficult to track down. It just makes it a more interesting problem to solve. And I think a lot of people try to solve it with, you know, tooling that gets incrementally closer to being decent. But I think, you know, users are always trying to opt out of this kind of tracking and justifiably so. So I tend to think of it almost from like a game theory perspective or let's assume we can't measure this very well, but we can draw certain inferences from what we can know, or maybe contrive, you know, almost A-B tests or something that without even the measurable data, we can get at it from an oblique angle. But I'll have to check out the tool you're talking about too, because I'm kind of always on the hunt for things that help clients better measure what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing too that, so there, I guess there are two things that this was making me think for the first one was when like a client says, we want to drive awareness 
of our product, like you mentioned, brand impressions. And I like the next question that I usually have is like, then what? Like if you, if you get to the top of Hacker News with your article and you generate for 40,000 brand impressions, like what does, like what's a successful outcome of that? Like, I assume that you then want them to sign up for your product, but like what kind of awareness do you want to drive? Cause it, it could be even negative awareness, like depending on, depending on what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, that one in particular is difficult. I think that it gets back to what we were talking about earlier with, with the Disney is that you have to kind of have this understanding that your measurement is going to be putting it generally imprecise. So if you contrive of ways to get a lot of brand awareness, maybe you're doing placement campaigns on like a lot, a lot of media properties with high viewership, like you work with the new stack or some of the other similar ones out there, you sponsor T-Zone, whatever the case may be, that'll generate a lot of brand impressions and what happens next. And the answer is it's kind of borderline impossible to measure exactly hmm. what's going on there. Although you could, you know, contrive of interesting ways to approximate it. Like say, right now our brand is getting, you know, 2000 searches a month in Google. If we run a bunch of brand awareness campaigns, I expect our branded searches to double or something. So you can kind of get at it, but brand awareness in particular is a very long play that's really hard to measure. And you're almost just taking it on faith from a lot of veteran marketers that like, hey, this will wind up being a good idea, you know, mm -hmm. assuming we survive long enough to take advantage of it. Yeah, I did. I did a couple like mini little case studies just based on firsthand experience of like one of them was Log Rockets blog. Hmm. So, and I do intend to invite them onto the podcast, but just from the outside, as an outsider, when I was doing front end development, I'd be searching for front end related problems, you know, on whatever, whatever topics, NPM, monorepo tooling, et cetera, et cetera, React. And I would be coming across the Log Rocket blog and I'm like, going through the articles, I'm like, this is very helpful. And I get to scroll down to the bottom and it's like, okay, Log Rocket is a front-end performance monitoring tool. You know, you just read something about how to reduce dependencies. Well, we track dependencies. This is how. I'm like, okay, that's cool. And then that, you know, that's the first time. And then second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time, 10th time, 15th time. I'm like, okay, Log Rocket does front-end stuff. If I ever need a front-end monitoring solution, I pretty much know exactly who I'm going to go to. And uh, and what's cool is I, I did a little bit of a searching around to see like, is this effective? And, and first I saw an ad that they had on Twitter, probably because I'm searching around. So they have targeted ads, mm -hmm. but uh, it was talking about how they are attracting million, millions of front-end developers to their blog. So that's kind of cool. But then the second one is I was looking on Product Hunt and, and they had posted a launch or it was like reviews, re reviews on Product Hunt. And I was scrolling through their reviews and there was one comment that was like, we adopted Log Rocket after reading the tutorial. And I'm like, yes, that that is like what is happening, but you don't really hear about it that often. Right. Uh, and uh, but that that is the power of like brand marketing long game. <laughs> Well, if you have the log rocket folks on, I, I would invite you to give them my compliments because we do a ton of keyword research for our clients and log rocket is in an awful lot of search results pages. So I have no doubt that they are getting millions of visitors per month. Yes, absolutely. So I think what would be kind of interesting to maybe talk about maybe two things, like what is the importance of technical expertise with creating developer content? 
I guess it would depend in my mind on the nature of that content. So the easy answer here, I think that a lot of people would give is, oh, well, you need a lot of expertise because developers hate to be marketed to. Mm-hmm. The latter being some you know topic for another day that I would actually dispute, but I think developers hate to be sort of patronized. Mm-hmm. Anyway, a lot of people would say developers are very skeptical audience, so you need developers that are marketing to them. And I would say that's true if the premise is instructive. So you need technical expertise to create a piece of content that is a tutorial. Let's say mm-hmm. you don't want, you know, a content marketer doing that. I think that if you're honest about the, the reason for creating the content, you don't necessarily need to be an expert. So if you take like LogRocket as a pretty famous program, so does DigitalOcean. If, if you have programs like that and you stand them up and say, I'm going to invite the community to share tutorials and tips and tricks, or maybe even a better example of this would be a true community site like Dev.2. Mm-hmm. If you go even as a beginner and say, you know, I just installed this framework and here's my experience getting up to speed. People aren't going to, you know, judge you too harshly, even if it's not like the most well thought out thing or whatever to, if you are like pretending to be an expert and getting it wrong. So I think that as long as you are honest about who you are and why you're creating this content, that you need just enough expertise to faithfully create that content. Mm-hmm. And I think marketers can actually create fine developer marketing content if it's PR stories or case studies or landing pages. You know, there are things that you'll consume that are well-suited to be created by copywriters and marketers. I do think the educational piece, it, at a bare minimum, has to be somebody with enough experience to, like, do the topic justice. And then, you know, maybe beyond that, if you're really trying to position yourself as an expert teacher, you should be something of an expert. Right. Yes. I think that makes, that makes total sense. And I've sort of seen the same, same thing play out with my work with clients. Cause they, if we're working on like a customer success story, like those, those can be done via interviews. And then the, you know, the copywriting is basically just taking from whatever the interview is. And there's the only place where the technical experience comes in is like during the interview process. And when you have an advocate, like a developer advocate doing the interview, then you sort of get that. And if you can combine that with like business questions, then you can sort of tackle both the technical side and the business side. And then you can have someone do the the write-up. But then when we're talking about tutorial content, that's when that's when you want either like a product engineer to be at least doing a technical review, if not just doing the writing yeah. and and then especially for creating courses and stuff like you need to have a like a deep <clears throat> sort of a deep experience with the product or with whatever you're teaching yeah absolutely i mean i guess as a rule of thumb i would say like if you find in any way that you feel some pressure to misrepresent yourself on creating content mm-hmm. something is wrong you should you should be creating content where if somebody knew exactly what your background was they would say, yes, it's appropriate for you to be creating this content for me. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And so what are, I think the one of the last questions I have is like, what are some of the common issues that you've seen like when you onboard new clients and you're you're taking a look at whatever they, they have existing? Like what are some of the maybe top three issues that you've seen? Issues in the sense of things that, that are kind of suboptimal that they're doing? Or... Yeah, yeah, suboptimal is a good word. One of the biggest ones I'll throw out there is pretty subtle, but I I think in the end, it can be perhaps the biggest mistake. And it's what I think of as creating performative content. And performative content, 
masquerades as thought leadership content, but thought leadership content, if you're going to create it, it's often controversial. You're surfacing something unknown or a different kind of opinion, a different way of thinking. And I think of true thought leadership as likely to earn you some detractors and also likely to earn you some fans. Mm -hmm. You are bringing something novel into the world. Performative content is when you're simulating that. It often comes up when you're aware that you need to have content, but you're not sure what to write about. It's very often, especially for earlier stage founders, tied in with kind of a vanity or like not wanting to look bad. And performative content is you're putting content on the site and there's really no target audience in mind because you're not really talking to anyone. The paradigm is look at me, look how smart I am. Look how smart our brand is. You should do business with us. Mm -hmm. And so that number one, it creates a lot of fear in the organization that's looking to produce content. So they produce it inefficiently. They hand ring over it and it lands with a thud because there's no audience in mind for it. So I think if you're sourcing content or looking to create it yourself or whatever you're doing and you're worrying a lot about what people will think of you as you're creating that content, that's the big mistake. because. Mm -hmm. That's almost like a resume or a cover letter. That's the ultimate piece of performative content. It's not at all about the audience. It's all about you and inviting someone to grade you. And that's probably the biggest mistake because if you are doing that and maybe you're justified, like if you're selling like boutique consulting services that yes, people will grade you and that might be how you acquire business. You should probably not make like volume content plays. You should, you know, have a pretty small amount of content. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of the biggest one. The second biggest thing I would say is having no KPIs in mind. And I don't mean that every, you know, everybody that hangs out a shingle or starts a business or gets a seed round of funding needs to, I mean, you're not all marketers. You don't know exactly what you should be measuring, but it shouldn't be something like I've heard people say things in the past, like, well, I just want to get in the habit of producing content. That starts to be like what I was talking about earlier, which is like, well, I'm just going to get in my car and start driving north because <laughs> I assume wherever I want to go, it's good practice. You should either know roughly what you're trying to do, or you should be engaging with somebody to help you know what you should be trying to do. So I think that's probably mistake number two. And then I think mistake number three, I would say is... I'll call it maybe like a lack of urgency, but it's more like not fully understanding what seeds need to be planted today if you want to reap them in six months or a year. So it's, there aren't a ton of wrong decisions you can make if you're actually creating content in the early days, because, you know, let's be honest, you stand up a brand and put out some blog posts. And if somebody doesn't like them, you have a good problem because it means somebody's actually reading. Mm -hmm. Most commonly, nobody's reading. So if you're producing content and you're not shooting yourself in the foot, but, you know, having site performance problems that are terrible or something, it'll probably be okay, but you're, you're, you're at risk of missing out on opportunities for things that you should probably decide in the earlier going. So if you think you want to go after search engine traffic, for instance, in the early going, you would want to do a handful of small things to make it more likely that you'll bring that traffic later. So I guess there's so many different flavors of this that can happen. It's hard to summarize them all, but it's not taking stock of the things you could do now that are fairly easy that would make you have a lot more options later for your eventual strategy. Yeah, that makes sense. Sort of like maybe creating leverage you know, with your content. Right. You know, I'm being 
more abstract about this than I wish I were because it, you know, it kind of runs the gamut as to how people do this, but it's, you know, missing the opportunity or assuming that, you know, I can wait three, four months or whatever mm-hmm. to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, an analog of it might be like retirement savings where, yeah, you can eventually make that up later. But with most, especially if you're going after volume plays for like funnel metrics, whether it's creating a log rocket style community contributed site, whether it's, mm-hmm. your own, you know, curated content or whether you're trying to build a following or stand up a YouTube channel. Usually if you're doing that, you want to do more and you want to do it earlier. And so you can burn a lot of time that might not seem like a big deal, but if you have a good sense of what you want to do earlier and more tends to be better for most plays. Yes. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And sort of the corollary would be like, don't let perfect be the enemy of good, you know, just get, get some content out there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Perfect. I think the digital ocean, the, the original person who did the content whose name escapes me had a quote if memory serves she said something that was similar to like product shipping like if you're not embarrassed by what you start out with you're way yes yep exactly all right eric this was a really great conversation and now it's time for drop an apple this is your chance to drop some knowledge on the audience are you ready i have one question sure so what's one thing you wish someone had told you early on about creating content and education for developers? I would say that there is a pretty serious and invisible uncanny valley between content creation as a hobby and content creation as a first-class business. And what I mean by that is when I stood up deadtech.com, I was doing a little moonlighting and using it as the marketing engine, I guess, for my moonlighting. But really, I was just writing blog posts because it was fun. And over the course of a bunch of years, I built an audience. I did some video courses for Pluralsight. I did a lot of content creation activities. And I think I see this writ large in the development world in general. At some point, I said, I have enough followers. You know, I could write a book. I could create some info products. And I didn't go this route, but I could have said, you know what? I'm going to go off on my own. I'm going to go into business for myself and I'm going to make something out of this following and content creation I built. In retrospect, there was zero chance of that really being successful Mm -hmm. without a pretty serious retooling of my approach in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I see this with YouTube influencers. I see it with people that hang out a shingle in various ways and try to go like B to C or I guess B to D, if you will, is to assume that early traction will stack into something, you know, like, oh, I got, you know, with this amount of effort, I got 10,000 followers and I'm making a thousand dollars a month. So if I just do this more, it'll linearly grow to, you know, a hundred thousand followers and 10 grand a month. And that's where that uncanny valley hits that you will tend to be in that valley and never get to that goal you have. And it's hard to understand why until you understand like marketing and positioning and sales and some other business things at kind of a deep level. So I didn't really, I I wound up kind of always staying in the B2B world, but there was a moment around the time we were founding Hit Subscribe where I was thinking of, I'm just going to go try to make a living as an indie creator. And I cannot tell you how glad I am that I did not do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like there's, I can resonate a bit with that too, like trying to run like a SaaS um, like a SaaS business as a hobby project for about nine years. And then in year 10 or year 11, I was like, okay, if I want to make this into a business, I actually got to think about 
positioning and I have to think about who my audience is and I got to level up on marketing and all of that stuff. And sure enough, as I started to do that, it started to grow. And now I've just sort of set that on the back burner, but yeah, I can, that's a, that's some really great advice. So Eric, where can people go to find out more about you and what you're up to? I guess I don't, I don't have much of a social media presence these days anymore, but the most reliable place to find me is deadtech.com, D-A-E-D-T-E-C-H.com. That used to be my indie consulting brand, and now it's just where I post miscellaneous rants from time to time. So that's probably a good starting point. Awesome. Well, this was super fun, Eric. Thanks for chatting with me today. I enjoyed being here. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eric. Here are the things I thought were worth pointing out when it comes to developer marketing and education. Eric shared a secret to better strategic planning, which is to work backwards. Remember those mazes you used to do as a kid? How long did it take you to realize that it was much, much easier if you just started from the center of the maze and worked backward? Start with the end in mind. As Eric laid out, your content strategy depends on who's buying. Whether it's the CIO or individual contributors, work backwards from there to inform your marketing strategy and then your content strategy. Remember, strategy is all hierarchical. Eric also mentioned the concept of traction. Experiment with different channels, find the one that has traction, then double down on it. I've included a link to the book Traction in the show notes. We talked about the spectrum of awareness and what type of awareness you're driving. Now, the typical marketing funnel is awareness, discovery, consideration, evaluation, intent, purchase, and loyalty. However, within that single awareness stage, there are different levels of awareness. I like referencing Eugene Schwartz's work on copywriting when I talk to clients about this. I've included a link for further reading there too. And Eric mentioned how early stage technical founders view marketing as explaining how awesome their solution is to logic you into submission. The way he helps them overcome this is to treat marketing as educating tomorrow's buyer. It's not about persuasion. You're not selling them on your solution. You need to come to them on their terms. Content marketing is a long game. I see this like Pokemon because I'm a huge nerd. But if your ideal buyer is a Charizard, who are the Charmeleon and Charmander audiences who will eventually evolve into your Charizard? Creating education for them that upskills them faster into the badasses you want them to be will build a huge amount of trust. Apple, Nintendo, Lego, Disney. Do you notice something about how they market themselves? They start early. Apple puts computers into schools. Nintendo makes devices so easy my five-year-old can play them. Lego, well, my 12-month-old plays with Duplos. And Disney, like I said, Mickey Mouse, newborn onesie. When thinking about developer marketing, in your mind, think Disney-style DevRel. Get to developers early in their journey and build that trust. By the time they're ready to buy, you're the only option in their mind because you've basically been by their side or helped them grow into who they are. In marketing, experiments are the name of the game, but to be an experiment means having a hypothesis and then the capture and measure results so you can gather data for or against that hypothesis. Eric mentioned a metric he sees as the ultimate one, customer acquisition cost to LTV ratio, or CAC to LTV ratio. Eric defines this as how much profit do you realize from spending money or time on content? Say you spend $500,000 on a content program, you get 10 customers who buy, but they each pay you $10. You think that's successful? Heck no. Even if they pay $50,000, that's still just breaking even. That is not successful. Ultimately, 
You want your content to drive profitable customers, but this is actually impossible to do successfully solely from a marketing organization. Because what if your program is so good, it drives tons of leads, but sales fails to close them? It wouldn't be fair to hold marketing accountable to this metric. It has to be part of a holistic strategy. It's, it's too much to explain succinctly, but Eric has provided some possible models to work from, and I've included a link to his essay that goes into tons more depth. Eric pointed out that when creating content, you know you're in a bad spot if you feel like you have to misrepresent yourself to create it. That's not good. Whether it's a tutorial, landing page, use case, or course, start by asking, who is it for? If you don't start there, you'll be creating content that doesn't resonate, regardless of the level of difficulty, format, channel, or medium. Here's a piece of advice. Go buy a small little chair, like a dollhouse chair, and put it on your desk where you see it every day. Every time you're in the act of creation, look at that chair and imagine who you're creating for. You know, I even went as far as to put a little character on mine. You'll have to check out the show notes to see who it is. Finally, Eric's advice for avoiding common mistakes when developing a content program, begin with the end in mind and make early decisions to set yourself up for later success. Have a strategy. Avoid performative content that masquerades as thought leadership. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. I think I said that one. If you're not embarrassed by it, you're waiting too long. Ship it. Start early if you want to play the long game. Don't wait. You can find the show notes for this episode at deved.rocks. That's it for this week. I'm Kamran Ayub, and I hope you'll join me again next time for Dev Educate. If you'd like to learn more about developer education and how it can help you grow your open source product or developer tool, just go to devedtestkitchen.com. Join other professional developer content chefs so we can all learn together how to cook up better gourmet content that educates and inspires developers. You can also reach out to me directly with questions or comments through my website or on Twitter at Kamran Ayub. I hope you have a lovely day.